You're listening to the Louisiana Literature Podcast. I'm Pike Malinowski. I can't think of anything more enjoyable than having a long, mind-altering conversation with a good friend. Maybe a close second is listening in on two incredible authors having exactly that kind of conversation. I mean, the things that I, Taye, know are so few compared to the things that can come through me when I open myself in the way that one must to receive fiction. I love that because part of the joy of fiction is sort of obliterating yourself from the process and becoming other. During this incredibly energetic conversation between the writers Tai Selassie and Carla McCann, Tai Selassie coins the term multi-local, a concept she's since developed and given TED Talks about. Rather than multinational, perhaps what it is is multi-local. Oh, that's nice. It, it, it is. I'm going to steal that one. Okay, but <laughs> you will all be witnesses that I said it yeah, first. Yeah. <laughs> no, the, this Point. Is... <laughs> this conversation took place at the Louisiana Literature Festival in 2013 and was moderated by the critic Kim Scott. Do you enjoy writing as much as it sounds when, uh, when we read this? <laughs> Me? Yeah. Uh, not as much as I enjoy listening to uh, Colin Reed, I have to say. But um, yes, I've loved to write since I was um, four years old. It's the thing that I've loved to do most, second only to reading. And even when it's painful, I find it somehow diabolically pleasurable. <laughs> so, 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 so you knew you wanted to write, but then suddenly a, a story came. Uh, oh. what, what, what happened with the novel that you started? I knew I wanted to write, and suddenly a story came, skips about 25 years yeah, in between, but sure, <laughs> we'll, we'll say that that's the way it went. <laughs> I was four when I told my mom that I wanted to be a writer, and I was 29 when I fled Sweden for the safe haven of Denmark to start this novel. And what happened very simply was that um, I saw my 30th birthday looming in the future, and I said, this is ridiculous, I haven't fulfilled the only dream I've ever had. So I quit my job and then swiftly found that you can't actually live in New York without an income. So I took to the road and I ended up at a yoga retreat in Sweden, as I told you, run by fascist Germans. And I was in the shower at this retreat, which reminded me of the senior red column because there was no heat in October and I was at risk of dying of hyperthermia when this entire world, this entire family, this, this entire novel came to me. So I went to the fascists and I said, listen, I know that electronics are not allowed in the yoga retreat, but I've been waiting for 25 years for my first novel and it's arrived in the shower. Mm. And they said, did somebody leave it there? <laughs> no, no, the first novel arrived as an idea to me mm. in the shower. And so I just need my laptop from your safe so I can write down the idea and then I'll give it back to you and I'll do the rest mm. when I leave the retreat. And they looked at me and they nodded with great empathy and then they said, nine. So I was like, no, 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 I just need my laptop, please. I'm gonna, I can't, I've been waiting for so long. They wouldn't give me my laptop. So my friend and I had to leave the yoga retreat, which had just entered its silent phase, probably for the best. And yeah. we took the train from Hall, Sweden to Copenhagen. And then we checked into the Admiral Hotel and then I wrote the first 20 pages yeah. of God and <laughs> Great story. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Denmark. Thank you, Denmark. <laughs>
Colin, do you still still enjoy writing as much? It, yeah. it sure sounds like it. Yeah, no, I, no, I, I love that moment where you absolutely um, lose yourself completely. Um, like, um, I love the the, the, the the idea of telling stories about writing. Uh, I wrote a novel called Let the Great World Spin, and um, one of the characters is a 38-year-old hooker um, in the Bronx. She, um, and, um, you know, sometimes I, I spent a long time getting into the voice and doing some research. I mean, I love research in a novel and so on, but you can't really <laughs> research what it means to be a 38-year-old hooker and still have a wife and three children, you know? So, but I'd done a lot of stuff. I'd done, I went out and I, um, I you know, uh, went through warehouses full of rap sheets in the Bronx and um, I read oral histories and I looked at photographs and I looked at, um, you know, all these different things to try and capture the voice that I was looking for, but it, it didn't, it didn't uh, come along until late one night, I was just um, chatting with my wife, and this line came along into my head. Um, I was trying to write sequentially, you know, I was born in Cincinnati, I moved to New York, because mm. it was boring. And then this line said, um, uh, the skinniest dog I have ever seen is on the side of the Greyhound buses. <laughs> and then I realized, ah, that's how she talks. Right? So I talked to my wife, I said, listen, I'll, be in, I'll, 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 I'll come to bed in an hour or two. Um, and then she tapped me on the shoulder, what I thought was like an hour or two later, and it was the next morning. And the mm -hmm. voice was there. Mm -hmm. And I remember then, just a couple of days later, um, my daughter, who's a soccer player, she's 16, um, she wanted to go play soccer in Central Park, and I'm typing away, working on this character, Tilly. And this note sl slid in under the door. You know, Daddy, let's go play uh, soccer in um, Central Park. And I, was, and I remember thinking distinctly, I can't go play soccer right now because I'm turning a trick under the Major Deegan. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be with you in five minutes. <laughs> that's all it takes. That's all. <laughs> for, for Tilly, that's all it took. She, she, she was masterful. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the relationship between uh, reality and fiction must pose some, some problems for both of you. you. You have written a novel about a family with a lot of uh, recognizable points to what your own uh, family and your own life has been, and yet it is obviously a novel. It is, it is not uh, an autobiographical tale in that sense. Uh, you you uh, have written a sort of a historical novel uh, with a lot of recognizable historical figures, I guess quite a lot of fictional figures as well, and then a living person in, in what is, is, a, is a protagonist in one of the stories. Right. So, so how, did you, how do you deal with that? Do you, do you want to go first, Colin? Sure. Um, I mean, sometimes reality is too good for fiction, mm -hmm. um, and, and, and especially nowadays um, in this world that we have with this sort of agile access to all sorts of stories in different places, and just the way the world uh, presents its incredibly absurd stories. Like, for example, we're here in Louisiana. I believe that um, the person who started Louisiana was married to a woman called Louise, not once, not twice, but three times. <laughs> if you put that in fiction, they'd say, ah, come on, that's not true. Um, and sometimes so fiction has to deal with reality in, in, in all sorts of um, uh, unusual ways. But what interests me is the intersection, the clash 
between um, what is supposedly real and what is supposedly imaginary. And it strikes me that the imagined is as real um, as uh, what we call reality. And reality itself is deeply imagined, whether it be by politicians or corporations or fiction writers or journalists. Mm. Um, and there's so many lies that we have to negotiate um, in what is presented as the real world. And for me, the job of the fiction writer right now is to question those lines so that we can question what comes across as the official truth. Mm. But, it, but it must have been quite different for you. If you, if you write about Al Cogan Brown or Frederick Douglass, just sort of, uh, sort of free to imagine from, from what you have of historical references. But when you write about George Mitchell, who's a living person, it must be quite a different challenge. Um, no, well, see, the funny thing is that no, I have as much responsibility to my fictional characters as I do to those characters who, who have lived in the world. They are as real to me as those fictional characters that I create are as real to me as the six and a half billion people in the world that I haven't yet met. So um, I don't see too much of a difference. I have as much. Um, you know, love and, and, and fear of and, and, and dread of and admiration for the, the ones that I create as the ones that I sort of take from real life. And that's part of the point um, mm. of, 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 of what I was, you know, trying to do, mm. to say that these imagined things mm. are fantastic. And the imagination lives in the most extraordinary way. It's one of the things that we don't acknowledge um, all that much in the world. We think it's sort of Uh, out there as a non-thing, mm -hmm. um, but the imagination is very, very real, um, and, 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 and the way it imprints itself on, on, on the world is sort of fascinating to me, uh, and the way the brain works and so on. It's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, surely It's the only difference between the characters you create and a historical figure, I loved what Colm said yesterday about historical fiction just being a horrible phrase, I couldn't agree more, but a historical figure is just someone who is dead, about whom other stories have been written. Yeah. Obviously we have never had a conversation with Frederick Douglass, any of us, mm. and so for you to imagine him, or for a biographer to imagine him, I see it as the same exercise as for me to imagine Sadie Sai. Yeah. We're, we're just telling stories about human experience, regardless of whether those human beings have lived or not. Mm. But, but did, you, did, you, did you feel an obligation to sort of... Uh, did, you, did you want to, to, to shuffle the cards a lot? Or did you say, no, I, I, I think I, this, is, this is the material I got, my family. This is what I'm writing out from. Oh, well, Ghana Must Go is not the story of my family. No. My, um, I, my story has a great family. My family has a great story. <laughs> my story does have a yes. great family. <laughs> I love the Sai family. And the Selassie Twalkleys are cool too, but I think our story is better suited to soap opera than literary fiction. <laughs> and I always say I have a story, but Ghana Must Go isn't it. So this is the story of the Sai family, and I told it as... Um, as faithfully as, as I could. I, I told it the way I heard it. I told it the way I received it. Yeah. Uh, do you, uh, do you uh, see yourself uh, equally in, in all the, the, the characters in the novel, or have you invested more of your own uh, image in, in, in 
some of the yeah, persons. Neither. I don't see myself in any of the characters no. in the novel, and that is for the best. Yeah, biography that's going on, um, and maybe more truthful because you are not writing uh, about, about yourself. yourself. And that, that for me, that's that that's really the joy of all of this um, is, is getting out. And, 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 and not having to deal with my sort of immediate housebroken, well-mannered life. <laughs> and doing something completely fucking wild, you know? And, 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 and discovering this stuff and not knowing where it's, it's going to go. Also in reading, when I read about the Say family, the savages, you know, the, the, the whole thing, I, I go on this, the, 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 this journey where I just become other for a while, mm -hmm. and that's great. But don't you feel that if you, and I address this to you because you've written more books than I have and better ones all. Not at all. Don't you feel that if you, if you call them new, if you knew and if you held within yourself all the knowledge that's contained within your novels, you would be Buddha. I mean, you would live in some state of contented bliss. There's so much wisdom in, 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 in your novels. I'm speaking specifically of Transatlantic and Let the Great World Spin. So much wisdom. But it's maybe I, um, I have a hard time imagining that one man can live that wisdom and actually can hold it within himself so much as he can let it come through him onto the page. Well, I think that's really um, uh, important because like during a well, especially at the end of a novel, I feel like a complete fake. You know, I don't know what it is that I've done, and I don't know where it came from. And I sort of have to acknowledge that part of that was just like operating on a, on a wing and a prayer. I hate that sort of new agey idea of mystery, but Vallejo says mystery joins us together, and I like that idea. Um, but um, you know. Some of it is, you know, lifted, some of it is read, some of it's imagined, but, but, but a lot of the time, I honestly just have no idea where it's coming from. And that's when it's really exciting. There's something yeah. even, like, sexual about it. There's something, like, thrilling about the moment where you're discovering something that, 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 that uh, you had no idea that you knew before. Completely. Um, I write songs and I just recently discovered that Column does too and the best thing I've ever heard on this subject is was said by a songwriter, a poet, Leonard Cohen, who when asked where his songs come from said, if I knew where they came from I'd go there more often. <laughs> That's how I feel. <laughs> so you're both writing songs, maybe we should hear a little more about that. How, how, how is that coming along? Transatlantic? Yeah. Yeah. I just wrote a song with a, um, uh, an Irish band that got back together after 20 years, a band called Clonad, um, and most of you know Anya, and it's Anya's brothers and sisters. Um, and it was kind of cool because Paul Brennan uh, came to me and said, listen, I love the novel, why don't we get together for an afternoon uh, and you know, write some, some, um, some lyrics. Then he sent me like, bits and pieces of the book that he liked, just lines, and then I shaped them um, just over the course of a night, we got together in the studio with his um, sister and his brother, and they're beautiful. They, he plays he plays the pipe, and uh, you know they play traditional Irish music, but in a really profound and new way. And they just we sort of like just we jammed basically, and 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 something I think something something um, good came out of it, and um, 
And, but it's a completely different process. I was trying to put in all these complicated words and everything. They were like, no, that's shit. That's <laughs> like, make it simple. I know. And no then, one can sing yeah. these words. And then the simple really sings. And, 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 but I think you have to have that, that, that intelligence uh, behind it beforehand. And then mask the intelligence, lose the intelligence, and then it'll come out somehow through the, the music. Mm -hmm. You're writing for a German band, right? Yeah, 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 I, I do. But you know, it's funny, I think that um, listening to the excerpt that you read, and certainly reading the one that I did, I, I studied music myself for a long time. I studied piano and cello, all, all classical, and music theory. And somehow when... When I wrote Ghana Must Go, I think I thought of actually writing the fiction, this comes to me now, as something very similar, if not the same as writing music. And when you were reading this, this scene, and I remember reading it myself, there's a way in which you use the language, which is, it's prose, but it's also composition. The short sentences, the longer sentences, just, you, you, you have this sense of a, of a rhythm, of a cadence which contains meaning as well as the words. And right. I think songs are like that. The melody contains a meaning which is either larger than or beyond the meaning that the lyrics carry themselves. And I think this is the, the incredible thing about writing music when you bring it back to your fiction. Mm. Some, some people say that the conductor doesn't matter, right? But I mean, the thing about the conductor is that she or he stands up there and there's the moment where he, she says, go, cello, go, right? right? right. Come in contrabass and right. like, do this. And, 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 and part of it, the, the, the process of writing, is allowing that weird little orchestra that's exactly. down inside you. Like, okay, just go, because I don't know what you're going to do, but you're going to do, you are going to do something. Yeah. Let go, yeah. So, so you are listening for the music when you write? No, but, but absolutely. It, my... my um, my process is a little bit silly. I, I think of Ghana Must Go actually more like a symphony in three movements. The parts are called um, Gone, Going, and Go. But, but I don't think of them as parts. I think of them as movements because in a symphony you'll have, you know, the adagio, the allegro, um, the same motif, the same melody, which recurs movement by movement, but at different paces, carried by the trumpets in one movement, carried by the violins in the next, and brought together to a climax in, in the last. And I, I think of um, Ganamas go in this way. Hmm. And, and let's acknowledge the fact also that sometimes the symphony just falls flat on its face. Oh, right? flat. <laughs> <laughs> Or, like, or a lot of the time, if not most of the time, it's like, ah, Jesus Christ, the piano player, he's just gone drinking, you know? <laughs> that's like Leonard Cohen, the piano has been drinking. No, 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 that's not, that's Lou Reed, isn't it? Or someone? It's Tom, Tom Waits. Waits. Tom Waits, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, my, it's my wind section that hits the sauce a little too often, but... Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah, all the time. But when I... No, I'm sorry, I was going to say, when I write, the, the pacing is very important to me. Um, it's something that I, that I feel rather intrinsically, and I've often wondered where it came from. I studied Latin for a very long time and was often translating these epic poems written in iambic pentameter, and so forth. I'll stop there, lest I Isn't she incredible? <laughs> I, I, I studied cello, I studied violin, I did Latin, I was in Sweden, then I was in New York, and then I was like, let me say this in Italian. <laughs>
Yes, yes, yes. I am a very big nerd. <laughs> you should know this about me now. Um, but when I write, wherever it comes from, be it Ovid or Jay-Z, there is a rhythm that just tries to articulate itself when I'm writing, so much so that if I write a sentence and I don't know how the sentence should end, I will just put what you would write in music, I'll just mark where the syllable should go. Mm. So the first sentence of Ghana Must Go is, Kwiku dies barefoot on a Sunday before sunrise, his slippers by the doorway to the bedroom like dogs. Written at the Admiral Hotel. But if I didn't know how that sentence would end, what I will often do is, Kwiku dies barefoot on a Sunday before sunrise, his slippers by the doorway, X, 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 X. Because I know that the sentence wants to end on this cadence, but I don't know what the words are, and then I'll come back to it maybe a few sentences later, and I'll understand what content adheres to that form. Mm. And this, to me, is exactly like songwriting. And then... Um, it just no, takes I'll, so I'll bloody long. After this, <laughs> but then the music finds the meaning. This is it. Mm. This is it. And so then the question is, well, why do you have to stick to that number of syllables? Couldn't you just write something that sounds another way? And I say no because the rhythm of one sentence is what carries you into the next sentence. This is what I like so much, and I'm now wondering if I stole it from you. <laughs> About this combination of these long lyrical sentences, these short phrases, and these almost clinical phrases that deliver information, one after the other, two at a time, one at a time. The, the way these things blend together, to me, you couldn't change a single syllable of this though it may not be obvious, without changing the entire meaning, not just the sound, but the right. meaning. Mm -hmm. uh, a, a theme that, that, that struck me as uh, very, very strong in, in your novel, uh, maybe I even uh, get to think of it when we sit here surrounded by Ai Weiwei's trees, uh, is this uh, concept about uh, the struggle for personal identity not to be hijacked by history, by, mm -hmm. by, by, by country, by class or whatever. And I think that sort of reflects on, on, on your novel as well. Could, could you expand a little on that? Sure. There's a part in the novel when Kwikusai, the protagonist, who's, who's dying... Well, he dies in the first two words of the novel, but then he takes like a hundred pages to stay dead. <laughs> in the future, I intend to write much shorter death scenes. Anyway, about page 100 or so, he's finally getting around to his departure from the earth. And he's reflecting that all he wanted was to be himself. Mm. Not to be poor, not to be Ghanaian, not to be African, not to be a symbol of anything or an icon of anything else, but just to have a human experience, small though it may be. And I think what he was asking for is something that's denied many people who are born inside history, whether in Ireland in the time that you write about in the midst of a of a civil conflict that is in itself defining the future of the nation state. Whether it's born in Nigeria at the outbreak of a civil war which uh, tore that place apart and left the state no longer a country, um, and so forth. And so I think what all human beings are looking for to a certain extent is a way to just be themselves. But what many of us are struggling with is the weight of group identity, religion, nation, state, color, 
these things which are fabricated, as you say, imagined, but mm -hmm. imagined in a way that becomes heavy, that becomes real, and is painfully imposed. Uh, it's really a fabulous theme um, right now. Um, and and, and um, Rushdie, Salman Rushdie talks about um, the international bastards of the world, uh, meaning no motherland, no fatherland. Um, on that, Jay talks about the international mongrels of the world. Again, same sort of notion. Uh, Berger talks about being a citizen of elsewhere. Mm -hmm. um, I remember uh, when he said that to me, uh, I, was, I, I, I met him in Paris. He's a fantastic man. He's an incredible man. John, uh, if you don't know the work of John Berger, go out and, and, and get it and, ha and, 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 and have a look at it. And, um, Ways of Seeing is a, a, a critical art essays. And To the Wedding is one of his uh, more accessible novels. Anyway, um, we were both, what's the, 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 the good word for it is overserved, <laughs> drunk. And um, I said to him, where are you from? I said, well, I'm from England. I said, I know you, I know where you're from. Where are you from, from? In other way, he said, where are you from, from? And he said, um, I'm a patriot. No, I said, I'm a citizen. No, I'm a patriot of elsewhere. And I like that notion. It's not that, 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 that somebody can't be from somewhere. Like, you can be from Scotland and, or Northern Ireland and, 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 and identify yourself that way. But just increasingly, when I look at like, people who fascinate me, they're, they're, it's coming from all sorts of different directions. Mm -hmm. And there's no particular label that, that, that you can put on it. Uh, part of our desire is to put a, you know, a label on things because mm. it makes things easy. This is fiction. This is non-fiction. You know? But no, you're messing with forms. You're using poetry. You're using journalism. The novel seems to me to be the thing that most beautifully contains uh, uh, or has the ability to contain uh, most other art forms. Yeah. yeah. And ambiguity. Yeah. That the novel has the ability to contain the ambiguity that we refuse or that we seek to control in our, in our efforts to label. Right. All, all this uh, labeling and putting in boxes and being defined by forces outside of you that you would rather be without. Do, do you think that is, that has that gotten worse in our day or, or is there on the other, or is there a greater freedom in, in defining yourself than, than there was before? Well, I know that personally, um, you know, I, I was born in Dublin, I went to America when I was in my 20s. Um, one, like there's a lot of stuff about American politics and, 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 and ideas of nationalism and ideas of selfhood that, that I just don't get on with. But one of the incredible things about the United States is the way that it accepts its writers coming from elsewhere. So that Sasha Heyman, Alexander Heyman can come from Bosnia and be Bosnian and also American, that, uh, you know, it can happen with Yeon Lee, it can happen with Edvige Danticat, it can happen with Juno Diaz, it can happen with any number of people. There is a generosity in the idea of American literature that um, sort of takes these uh, other people in um, and, and allows that to happen. I mean... I, Because there's an ambiguity in the idea of American right. before you even get to American literature. Yeah. There's no purity implied in that word American. And so it would be. You spent spacious. a long time in, 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 in Massachusetts, right? Longer than I cared to, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I did.
Uh, Tsai, some, some years ago, you, uh, in, a, in an essay that became very influential, mm-hmm. you, you uh, coined the term Afropolitan. Yeah. Uh, could you explain to people here what that yeah, is about? Absolutely. <laughs> Now I'm wishing that I had called yeah. us patriots of elsewhere, <laughs> but I did not. When I was dropping out of graduate school, I was asked to write an essay for the Africa issue of a magazine, and I had just grown weary of writing about the state and its resources and war and oil and so forth. And so I said, I know, I'll write about um, identity, which was a bit tricky because I didn't really have one, (laughs) as I discovered immediately upon beginning the essay. There are these four doors that lead to my possible identities, and they are Ghanaian, because my father's from Ghana, Nigerian, my mother is Nigerian and Scottish, American, because I spent a lot of time there perfecting this American accent, and British, because I was born in England and I hold the British passport. And yet, I sort of stood, I love this phrase that you use, the small white room of the mind. I stood in this small white room of identitylessness, because in Ghana, nobody believes that I'm Ghanaian, in Nigeria, the same. In England, if I turn on my British accent, it gets a bit easier, but in America, absolutely not. So I was always being told, you're not this, you're not that, you're not this, you're not that. And when I sat down to write the essay, it occurred to me that perhaps there were other people in this antechamber with me um, as a function of just the, the dynamics, the, the movements that have shaped our world, globalization, immigration, decolonization, so on and so forth. Many things that end in ization. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> These have created we international, mm. us international bastards. Yeah. And when you are African, that is such a catch-all. It's, a, it's an adjective that is used lazily and ubiquitously to mean absolutely nothing, as far as I can tell, mm. other than you know, kente print and some drums in the background. And so what I wanted to do was to consider that there were those of us who had this inexorable bond to Africa, Mm -hmm. but also an incredibly hybrid and contemporary identity. And I gave those people, my people, my cousins and me, the Mm -hmm. name Afropolitan. But when I hear this phrase, citizen of elsewhere, I realize that I was speaking actually of an international body of people, yeah. and I just happened to be writing about those from Africa. Which, 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 which doesn't negate um, the notion that um, the, you know, we, we should, as fiction writers, go as local as possible. Right. Yeah, of course. And go really, uh, and all, uh, McGahern, John McGahern, the Irish writer, says uh, the the local is the universal with the walls taken down, or, or the universe. Sorry, the universal is the local with the walls taken down, um, and 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 you know he was really specific, and 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 he was using his own background, uh, coming from a farming family, on all these things uh, to write about, you know. Uh, a basic encyclopedia of human nature, mm. um, and so nothing, nothing is right and nothing is wrong. You don't have to necessarily write in this grand international scheme mm. that I like to to, to do, or, or you don't have to necessarily like concentrate in on one little small patch of land. Um, uh, you know, I like I, I like the idea that we sort of become a hybrid of of, of all of those things. It, you make me think, though, that this phrase multinational is wrong, 
even though you just said nothing is right and wrong. <laughs> I think that rather than multinational, perhaps what it is, it's multi-local. Yeah, no, that's nice. It, it, it is. I'm going to steal that one. Okay, but <laughs> you will all be witnesses that I said it yeah, first. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, Point. Is, <laughs> um, multi-local. That, that's what I am. Mm. My, I don't, I, you know, it's often said she was born in England and raised in the States. Her parents are from West Africa. She lives in Italy. This is true, but I, but it's also empty. Mm. I, I was born in London, not all of England. I was only born in one hospital in London, yeah. and that's the only local I know. Mm. Just like I know Rome, I know Trastevere, I know Accra, I know Lagos. I know very little of the other parts of Ghana, very little of the other parts of Nigeria. And if really I'm thinking of my identity, it's multi-local. There are these many, there are these multiple, really finite places, mm. right down to the smell, the quality of the air, the, the, the spices and the food. Mm. that make up who I am and how I see the world. Can I just say, I had this real interesting idea that we're all multi-local. <laughs> uh, when you look at the, at the classical uh, immigrant novel, uh, which, which uh, is, is somewhere in the genealogy of this, uh, it was about having torn up one's roots and, and putting roots down mm -hmm. another place. But, but your books are a lot more ambiguous about this. Uh, you go back and forth across the Atlantic mm, and yeah. the characters in your novel, yeah, well, do they put down roots where they, they found solutions maybe to their life that can enable them to maybe yeah. put down roots somewhere in, in relationships. So, yeah. so what are your thoughts on this? Uh, I mean, it's funny, when, I, when I'm in New York and I'm about to go back to Dublin, I say, I'm going home to Dublin. When I'm in, uh, in Dublin, I say, I'm going home to New York. Um, and I feel that, 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 that both of these things are torn up and, 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 and mixed together. But I think the word home is really important here when we talk about um, leaving. Um, one of the things that, 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 that um, you know, Joyce he used to talk about the, the, the idea of Ireland and why he stayed out of Ireland. And he stayed out of Ireland um, because he wanted to hear the voice of Ireland in everything um, that he met. Mm. Um, and I think that essentially what we're trying to do is to find some sort of uh, way to call something decent and proper uh, that we find around ourselves as something called home, whether that be a house, whether that be a country, whether that be a locality. Um, and and um, emigrants, it seems to me, and I, and I left, I wasn't an exile, but I left, they sort of, like, um, they wound themselves. They leave uh, partly because they want to remember. There's something that could be vaguely nostalgic about that, but I don't think it is. It's almost like, you know, you go away and, 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 and you cut yourself in order to mm. keep yourself awake to your country. Um, and, there's, uh, and, and that's why it's sad to leave, or it, it used to be hugely sad to leave, because you, you definitely weren't going to uh, be getting back. But I still think that you know, maybe the 19th and 20th century were characterized by these ideas of, uh, of exile and emigration, but I think increasingly the, the, the idea is um, how do we get home and what is home? And this mm. is one of the questions that we're talking about when, when, when we write this stuff. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I, but it's funny, in my own thinking about home, I've started to wonder how anybody goes back to anywhere. There's a wonderful author named um, Mohsin Hamid, who recently published 
uh, a fantastic book, How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia. <laughs> and Thanks. he and I have laughed about how he always is asked to talk as the Pakistani writer. And I then tell him, well, at least you don't have a whole continent on your back because I have to be the modern African writer. And we're, we, we are often faced with the same question. Do you intend to go back? Mm. Okay, the problem with this question, as he helped me understand, is that nobody can go back. Not least because the place that you left is no longer that place anymore, and the you that left has become somebody else. And so he, he said, you know, you know, Taye, I love the way you talk about being multilocal, a word that I didn't have until tonight. But he said, I don't think of myself as someone who moves between cultures. I think of myself as a time traveler. I move between a Pakistan that exists only in my memory mm -hmm. and a Pakistan that exists now, an apartment in Brooklyn that is very real, for which mm -hmm. I'm paying very real rent, <laughs> and, you know, festivals around the world, some of which are throwback in their very, yeah. in their very nature and in their very notion. And so I've, the more I think about this, I think it's true. I think mm -hmm. that we are time travelers in a yeah. way. I think when I go to my father's village outside of Accra, outside of the main town called Sokakope on the Volta River, it's not just a transatlantic flight, it's time travel. Yeah. And when I come back to Rome, I'm coming a little closer to the 21st century, but not quite, and then I come to New York, and I'm here, and I go to Hong Kong, and I'm practically in the future. Mm. And, and, and I think that home, then, becomes the thing that grounds us to the present. It's the relationships, it's the love, it's the... It's the embeddedness that allows us to keep track of who we are in all of this motion. Yeah, and, and also, can I just say all that incredible grief? Um, the busiest place in Ireland right now are the, 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 the short-term parking lots at the <laughs> airports. And do you know why this is? Because all of these people are leaving Ireland once again. And they are literally, they're walk this is so sad. They are walking out of their houses. They throw the keys down on the mat. They get in and, and, and they leave all that behind. They get in the car that they have leased and they're, they're going to get on a flight. And they know that they're going to leave this car behind and they will never return to this country again because they have this uh, like amazing debt that, 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 that they have to deal with. And so instead of parking your car in the long-term parking lot, they park it in the short-term because it's a shorter walk and a shorter <laughs> amount of grief to walk from that short-term parking lot to get on that plane that takes you away forever. And I thought that sort of shit had finished like 50, 100 years ago, but, 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 but it's still there today. And so part of our job is to recognize that. And, um, and I love this idea. Brodsky talks about you can't go back to the country that doesn't exist anymore. anymore. Yeah. And, 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 but these are some of the things that, that, that we have to, have to uh, you know, write about. Mm. And I thought that was all twee. Oh, Ireland's cool now. Ireland's sexy, you know, doing all this stuff. But no, it's not. It's back to, to in some sort of way, to, to where it was, you know, 20 years ago, 50 years yeah. ago, 100 years ago. Ireland's a little bit cool. It's a little it is sexy. Cool. Yeah, yeah, it's a little yeah. sexy. Yeah. <laughs> I love she has Ireland. family. She has family in Killarney. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Well, our short-term parking here in Louisiana is about to come to an oh, end. No. But we have become multi-locals. We have multi become time travelers in, a, in an hour. And I think it has been great. And it's been great listening to you and listening to your reading. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you, yeah. Thank you. Give them both a big hand.
Tahi Selassie and Kala McCann visited the Louisiana Literature Festival in 2013, where they were interviewed by Kim Scotty. The conversation was edited by Camilla Bruce and produced by Christian Lund. The Louisiana Literature Podcast is produced by the Louisiana Channel. Original music for this podcast is made by Bob Pounding. Associate producer is Esther Kongstel. You can watch and listen to hundreds of other interviews with great writers and artists from all over the world at the Louisiana Channel. That's channel.louisiana.dk Or you can find them on YouTube. I'm Pike Malinowski. Thanks for listening. Thank you.